Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is, pro- is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. So what do you think about that? Do you think that death is far better than remaining in the flesh? I suspect most of us, if we're honest, are more likely to say it a different way. For to me, to die is Christ, and to live is gain. After all, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I wouldn't mind departing to be with Christ, but it would be better to remain in the flesh. Because if we're honest, I like it here, and all the people I love are here. Our identity, our meaning and purpose, our quest for happiness are found here, in the flesh. Now, for some, that begins to change as our loved ones start dying here and we start realizing our hearts and minds start turning to the hereafter, to the life in Christ forever. John Calvin comments that the mind is never seriously aroused to desire and ponder the life to come unless it be previously imbued with contempt for the present life. Oh, contempt? 
for the present life? Isn't that a little strong? Well, here's where we're going in Philippians. In chapter 3, Paul will say, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul considers all his best accomplishments as rubbish, as dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, Calvin's way of putting it shocks us, but when he says, there is no middle ground between these two. Either the world must become worthless to us, or hold us bound by intemperate love of it. What is it that we love? What is it that we desire? The question that Colin was asking in Sunday school about, in the end, everybody, when you ask them what is it that they want, in the end, what they're going to say is, I want to be happy. I want happiness. And that is the end that we should pursue. Happiness is a good end. But Calvin agrees with Paul that where are you going to actually find happiness? If you think that you are going to find happiness if you just you know, figure out who the right person to marry is, if you just figure out how can you, you know, have a great career, have a great family, if you think that that is going to end in happiness, actually, that, that ends in death. Every marriage yet has ended in death. Every family ever has ended in death. Every career has ended, well, sometimes in retirement or in death. So where is the happy life to be found? There is no middle ground between these two. Either the world must become worthless to us, in the sense of, this is not where I find my happiness. Or, hold us bound by intemperate love of it. We, if we love the world, then we will become bound up to it. This life has value for us only because here we begin to taste the sweetness of the divine generosity. And that taste of, of divine sweetness should prompt us to long all the more for the heavenly life. And so Calvin concludes, No one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. If you do not yet desire to depart and be with Christ, then you are not yet thinking rightly about your life in Christ. You see, you will only come to say properly, to live is Christ, when you believe from the heart that
to die is gain. Because Paul says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means because to live is Christ, to die is gain. If because I know that my happiness, my joy, my contentment, everything is in my life is found in Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, because that is whose I am and who I am. Therefore, to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. But I he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But for the sake of the church, I will remain. Notice that Paul's piety has a very church-centered focus. His sense of duty recognizes that his calling, his, his reason for remaining on this earth is wrapped up with this fruitful labor in being fruitful in the life of the people of God. And we saw last time that Paul's deliverance does not depend on whether he lives or dies. But Paul says that through the, the prayers of the saints in Philippi and elsewhere, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, his imprisonment will turn out for his salvation. His Deliverance doesn't just mean, oh, I'm going to get out of prison. Deliverance means, I will be delivered whether I live or die. That will still be salvation. That will still be deliverance, because Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so he says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, for your advance in, in, and, and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Notice Paul gives three reasons for why he knows he will stay and remain with them. The first is for your progress in the faith. In verse 12, Paul had shown how the gospel was advancing. Now he uses the same word to say that the, the Philippians' own advance in the gospel, their own advance in faith is growing in the knowledge of, of, of God. Your progress in the gospel is intimately connected with my progress in the gospel. Our, our, we are woven together in the body of Christ. That As the gospel goes forth in all the earth, it also goes forth in our midst. But not only is it for our progress in the faith, it is also for our joy in the faith. The theme of joy runs all through Philippians, and Paul brings it back again. He's, he's not just interested in seeing their progress, their development. This is not just a mechanism that he's trying to sort of organize. No, it, there's also our joy in the faith. Because until we see that to live is Christ, to die is gain, until we realize that the suffering of the present life is the way it's supposed to be. You will not find joy in the Christian life. Your progress and joy in the faith is about how to learn to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Paul is describing how his, he's imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And he's, he rejoices that the imperial guard has recognized that he is imprisoned in Christ. This is all about what, it's all about the gospel. And, and part of Paul's suffering is also brought about by these brothers who are preaching Christ, some out of good motives, but some out of envy and rivalry. In the Christian life, part of your suffering may come from your fellow Christians. Because Paul's not saying they're not really Christians. He's saying, oh, no, they are Christians, just 
there's, there's a problem here. Part of your suffering may come from your spouse, from your parents, from your children. And what we need to learn is that this is what Christ has called us to endure joyfully. So that, Paul says, the third reason for why he will stay with them, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory, to boast in Christ Jesus. Because when, when God sets me free from this prison, you will get to rejoice and boast in that. We should brag about our King Jesus and what he has done in his servants. And I would say the, the, the boasting, as Paul, Paul always focuses on boasting and weakness rather than glorying and strength. So I'd say, you know, it's not that B.B. Warfield was a great theologian and wrote essays. That's not why you should boast in Warfield. You should boast in his devoted care for his invalid wife. That his wife, after their honeymoon, took ill. I mean, it was a thunderstorm out in, out in Europe that seems to have wrecked her nerves. And he spent the rest of his life caring for his wife. Why was B.B. Warfield never the great churchman that, that Charles Hodge was? Well, because he couldn't leave Princeton. He had to be there for his wife. So he didn't do a lot of traveling. He didn't go off and do all the great things. He took care of his wife. And that was what Christ called him to do. And that's, we glory in that because that, that, that he suffered for the sake of Christ in caring for her. That's great. Only the Spirit of Christ can give us joy as we bear the cross. And this is why Paul then turns to how we ought to live as citizens of the gospel uh, when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, this, his, the, this focus here is, uh, in verse 27 is important. The only let your manner of life. This is the only thing that Paul is concerned about. The one thing that he will in, in, encourage and exhort the Philippians to remember. If you forget everything else, remember this one thing. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, the, the word translated manner of life is, is, is rooted in a, in a verb that it's, it's, it's about the idea of, of living in a city together. It's, it's connected with the idea of citizenship. And he'll use a related word in chapter 3 when he speaks of how our citizenship is in heaven. And he's using the same idea here. And part of it is he's writing to a Roman colony here at Philippi. Philippi's governors were appointed directly from Rome. So the Philippians would have understood very well the importance of citizenship. And Paul is saying that their Christian citizenship, their gospel citizenship, is the central thing that matters as they live out the Christian faith. The the early church understood this point well. The epistle to Diognetus says that Christians are those who pass their time upon the earth but have their citizenship in heaven. If the Philippians are to join Paul in his motto, to live is Christ, to die is gain, then they must consider all other allegiances as rubbish. Do you hear that? If, if you want to follow Paul as he imitates Jesus, if you're going to say to live is Christ, to die is gain, then all other allegiances must be considered as dung. Your manner of conduct, your citizenship 
in this life. Your allegiance to your city, your people, must be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The character of your relations with one another and with outsiders should be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. When you're talking with your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your, 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 your children, your, your brothers and sisters, think, how does the gospel call me to speak? How does what Jesus did when he came in the flesh, how does that influence what I'm saying in my conversation with this other person that I'm talking to? How does the gospel inform and shape the way we live as a body? Now, Notice the content of this worthy citizenship in verse 27, when Paul says that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, given that this is a Roman colony, some people have made connections to Roman military practice and we're pointing out the, the efficiency of military formations, and it's, which is very much the theme when standing firm, striving, would make them think of military or athletic competitions that emphasize teamwork. Paul's image of the citizen pilgrim is that we are marching side by side, laboring together, and, and that's why in one spirit, with one mind, are so important. We stand firm in one spirit, in the spirit of Jesus Christ. We stand firm, we co-strive with one mind. And this is why it's important for us to remember that that our sanctification is not just an individual project. We need one another. Paul just told us in in the last section that he needed the prayers of the Philippians to be saved. If an apostle needed that, how much more do you and I? We need one another in the work of the church. Paul didn't go out and try to plant churches by himself. It was always a team effort. We need to work together to co-strive in the work of the gospel. It was a delight to get together this afternoon over at Heart City with a number of our our, our brothers and sisters there and to to pray together, to co-strive in the gospel with, with our daughter church. Another example of this was we, we had a member who for, was a graduate student at Notre Dame, and she, she tried for a couple of years to, she was, she was trying to be a faithful witness to her colleagues. And she, she came to me after a couple of years like, it's getting exhausting. I'm spending so much time with unbelievers, and I feel like I'm sort of like getting pulled away. And my encouragement to her was, is there any way you can connect us? And she was like, huh. So she started inviting one or two people from Michiana Covenant to events where she had her unbelieving friends over. And actually, one of her friends happened to live in our neighborhood. So next thing you know, we're getting together and building relationships. And and, and she said that after, after a few months of that, she was like, this is so much better. Because now she's, she's still building relationships with her unbelieving friends, but she's also connecting her believing friends to her unbelieving friends. And we're able to co-strive, we're able to labor together in the gospel as we seek to bring, one, bring, to bring our friends to, a, to, to know Jesus. 
We need to engage in that corporate witness however we can in our community, whether through Michiana Covenant Academy, whether through Kaler House, whether through each neighborhood, each place where you live. Sort of, if you've got somebody in your neighborhood and you're thinking, hey, I, you know, I've got, I got a connection here. I mean, one, one person recently said, hey, I got a, I got a friend, He's, he, needs to, he wants to talk to a pastor. Would you talk to him? And so I was like, sure. So I... If you, if you know somebody who might be wanting to talk to a pastor sometime, let me know. I can, if you know somebody who would be willing... I mean, years ago, I, I did some evangelistic Bible studies with, where there were people who... We want to we get people in our neighborhood together who are interested in the gospel. Uh, they're not ready to come to church, but could we just do an evangelistic Bible study in my house? Sure, absolutely. How can we co-strive, labor together in... As we, as we seek to let our manner of life, let our gospel citizenship uh, be to sh- show forth as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Don't be afraid. I mean talking with Colin Redimer, who lives in Berkeley, California. I mean, Berkeley, California is a place where you might be afraid of (laughs) some of the things that are going on there. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who would mock you. Don't be afraid of those who would trouble you. Why? Because he says, this is a, verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Wait, what is a clear sign? You're standing firm in one spirit. You're striving side by side with one mind. That is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul envisions a world where there are opponents who seek to undermine the church. And Paul makes it clear here that these these aren't just impersonal forces. There are people who oppose the people of God, they're going to be hostile. And it's not just sort of psychological opposition. There will be corresponding behavior. There will those who will stand against you. And Paul says, stand together. And Paul doesn't name these opponents, but of course, as Paul will remind the Philippians in chapter 3, he was once one of those opponents. He was once one who persecuted the church and sought to destroy the church. So as you think of those who are opposing you, remember that God may, and we should pray that God will, convert these opponents to the gospel. But whether they are converted or not, a united, fearless stand by the church of Jesus Christ will be a sign to them of your salvation and their destruction and this from God. Because conflict, destruction, perseverance, salvation is all from God when we realize that, yes, to live is Christ. To die is gain. The conflicts that you're experiencing may appear frightening. They may discourage you. But don't let that happen. Maybe you're tempted to interpret these conflicts as a sign of trouble ahead, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. No, Paul says, that's exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as the evidence of God's design to save you. Why? 
Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had when Paul was in Philippi. He had a little trouble. He got thrown in prison and all that. There was that earthquake and the Philippian jailer. That was in Philippi. So you had seen the conflict that Paul had. And now here that I still have. Now I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. Now, this needs to be ingrained in our hearts as just, this is going to be the Christian life. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift from God. We tend to think of suffering as something to get over with as quick as possible so we can get back to enjoying life. But God calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. He calls us, it's been granted to you. It is a gift from from God that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This brings us back to the importance of meditating on the future life. Because as, as Calvin again says it beautifully, now we see how many good things interwoven spring from the cross. And when he says the cross here, he's, he's both referring to the cross of Christ, but then also the cross that Christ calls us to bear. When Jesus says to us, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now we see how many good things spring from the cross that we must bear. For overturning that good opinion which we falsely entertain concerning our own strength and unmasking our hypocrisy, which affords us delight, the cross strikes at our perilous confidence in the flesh. The cross teaches us, thus humbled, to rest upon God alone, with the result that we do not faint or yield. And this is one of my favorite lines from Calvin. It is of no slight importance for you to be cleansed of your blind love of self, that you may be made more nearly aware of your incapacity, to feel your own incapacity, that you may learn to distrust yourself, to distrust yourself, that you may transfer your trust to God, to rest with a trustful heart in God, that relying upon his help, you may persevere unconquered to the end to take your stand in his grace, that you may comprehend the truth of his promises, to have unquestioned certainty of his promises, that your hope may thereby be strengthened. The cross strikes at our confidence in ourselves. When we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, then we endure not Not like the Stoic who just suffers because that's the way things are. The Christian endures suffering because we see the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. Yes, the Christian life is a life of self-denial, taking the cross, following Jesus. But the Christian life is not a cross-centered life. 
The Christian life is a resurrection-centered life. We do not endure the cross for its own sake. We We endure the cross the same reason Jesus did, for the joy set before him. The joy that is set before us. The reason why we learn to to abhor ourselves, the reason why we learn to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, is because we see that it's only through this path that we come to glory and joy and peace beyond human telling. See, our, our problem is that we still think deep down inside somewhere that yeah, that, yeah, that, that's all fine. That's all fine someday. Yeah, yeah. Once I'm once I'm done enjoying this part. What I found over the years is that every time I do that, it doesn't. I'm not very happy, actually. <laughs> I'm finding my. I'm seeking my happiness here and now. I'm not finding it. When do I find happiness and joy now? When I'm not seeking happiness and joy now, but I'm seeking Jesus. I'm seeking his way. I'm denying myself, taking up my cross, following him. And there's this really weird, strange joy that comes in the midst of the cross. There's this really strange joy that comes as I'm, as a, I, I don't know how to describe it in any other way than to say, It's a joy unspeakable, but truly delightful in a way that no joy, no earthbound joy has ever managed to compare to. And as evidence of this, Paul points out to this, that the Philippians are themselves now engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And here again, the, the, the language of conflict, the imagery of the athletic contest emerges again. Paul engages in the agony, the conflict of the Christian life. How often do we think of the Christian life as something agonizing? I fear too often we simply play at sanctification as though it was a, a computer game. Oops, I got blown up. Push restart. Let's try again. That's not the attitude Paul has to the Christian life. He says that standing firm together in one spirit with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel, this is a clear sign of your enemy's destruction and your salvation. We do this as we, as we walk together, as we encourage one another, as we strive in the faith of the gospel side by side in the projects that we're working on. It could be a project... It could be anything as simple as, hey, you know, you're working on something on your house. You know, let's do it together. Let's, let's do it together and encourage each other in the gospel. It could be as something that, you know, hey, it's springtime, planting a garden. We got one here if you, need to, if you, if you, if you want. Or if, in your own garden. Invite somebody to participate. Join in. Talk together. Pray together. Encourage each other. Find out what's going on. How can we walk together, strive together, labor together? I, I really don't want to see us trying to do more things, do more things, do more. No, no. Let's take the things we're already doing. Let's not add anything else. Let's take the things we're already doing, and let's do them 
together, side by side, striving together for, for the faith of the gospel, encouraging one another, looking for, I know, sometimes, sometimes you think, oh, I'm sure they're busy. Well, sometimes they just might really enjoy being invited and say, hey, yeah, actually, I've got some time. Or if you've got time and you'd like to be helpful, you can, I mean, hey, seriously, if you have time and you want to spend time with people, I have a hunch. If you put out a note to the forum saying, hey, you know what, on, the, on Friday afternoon, I'm not doing anything, and I'd like to, you know, if somebody's got something, to do, I'm sure somebody would respond by saying, oh, yeah. So, just a hunch. I don't know. But on the other hand, if, you've, if your life's already full, then just be looking for when are the opportunities to strive side by side. When you've got that, that unbelieving friend who says, you know, how can you come together and join together with other Christians to sort of walk together in showing forth the gospel in the way that we walk before the watching world? And as we do this, we will be showing them a sign of, of the salvation that Jesus has come to bring. Father, we pray that you'd help us because we too often do not love you with a whole heart. We too often do not love one another as we ought. We too often have not striven side by side for the sake of the gospel. Rather, we have walked our own paths. We have sought our own kingdoms. Forgive us. Renew us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to have the same mind and the same spirit that you have given us in Christ Jesus. Help us, Father, in in our homes to show forth the love of Christ, in our workplaces to live faithfully as citizens of your heavenly kingdom, as as in our our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. When we go to the store, Lord, help us to love our neighbors, to, to be a friend to the friendless, in every place we go, that we might show forth the great friend, our Lord Jesus, who has loved us and given himself for us. Help us, Father, and, and give us wisdom, because we, we are weak and frail, and, and we need your help. And we, we pray that you would have mercy on us here, and indeed upon all those who name the name of Jesus, that throughout all the earth, in every land and in every tongue, that the name of the Lord Jesus might be praised, that those who preach your gospel would preach boldly and faithfully the good news of the kingdom that whether out of good motives or bad, may Christ be preached. May the gospel go forth in power. May your spirit and may, may your word accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that it might bring about faith, hope, and love in the lives of your people, that your spirit, as he works in, in, each, in each place where the gospel goes forth, may your spirit prepare the way and open eyes and ears to hear that those who walk in darkness might see, hear and see the, the glory of Jesus. And as we go to our rest now this night, we pray that you would sustain comfort and help us that we might find our joy, our satisfaction, our happiness in Christ alone. For we pray in his name. Amen.